science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Well, welcome aboard. Uh, I'm Joe Schwartz, and uh, as you know, I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society, where we try to make sure that you're on track with what is happening in the world of science. We separate sense from nonsense, fact from myth, and uh, tell you some interesting stories, uh, try to tantalize your mind, put you on the road to critical thinking, and uh, every Sunday afternoon, we have a load of fun as well. And uh, I uh, uh, like to tell you that I believe that my specific area, which is chemistry, is the science that ties all the other sciences together. Because if you have a feel for what molecules are all about and what they can and cannot do, you have a pretty good idea uh, of, you know, evaluating what is going on in, in the world. All right, let's get started here today. I want to talk to you a little bit about epidemiology. And that is the study of how often diseases occur uh, in different groups of people and why they occur. So I'll tell you a little story about a little nondescript town in Nevada called Fallon. And it's nondescript except for the naval air station that is found there. And one more thing, a cluster of acute lymphocytic leukemia cases that occurred between 1997 and 2001. Now, this is a disease in which too many underdeveloped viral infection-fighting white blood cells called lymphocytes are found in a child's blood and bone marrow. In other words, it means that their immune system is not working properly, not able to fight off foreign intruders. Now, a disease cluster is the occurrence of a greater than expected number of cases of some disease within a group of people in a geographic area or within a certain period of time. True clusters are difficult to define and the causes are often obscure. Most non-occupational cancer clusters turn out to be the result of random nature of the disease. But clusters of the type found in Fallon certainly merit investigation. So, as I said, for four years from 1997 to 2001, leukemia was diagnosed in 16 children in the Fallon area. A population of 8,000 or so, as was the population of Fallon at that time, would be expected to have no more than one case every three years. And uh, here we had 16. When epidemiologists begin to investigate such clusters, they ask the basic question, what is the difference here? The Naval Air Station immediately came to mind. Airplanes sometimes jettison fuel. Could that possibly be the cause of leukemia? Jet fuel is released by regulation only during emergencies and at very high altitudes. Because it is so high in the atmosphere, it aerosolizes or breaks up into very fine particles that spread out quickly and evaporate. Very little fuel, if any, makes it to the ground. 
Okay, so that's not likely the cause. What about leaks from a pipeline that delivers fuel to the base? No leaks were found. In any case, numerous health studies on the safety of jet fuel indicate no evidence to suggest a link between jet fuel and leukemia. Next, the town's water supply was tested. Industrial chemicals were searched for. Various metals were looked at. Slightly elevated levels of uranium and arsenic were found, but this was not deemed to be of any consequence because uh, uh, arsenic is ubiquitous. It's found in many water supplies, and certainly there are many places in North America where arsenic levels in the water are higher than in, in, in Fallon. Uh, what was surprising, though, was the finding of tungsten at levels 13 times greater than the national average. Tungsten, of course, is the metal that uh, is used in light bulbs, or I guess these days I have to say was used in light bulbs because light bulbs, tungsten light bulbs, are not uh, manufactured as much as they used to be. Of course, they've been replaced by fluorescent lights. They've been replaced by LED lights. But anyway, tungsten uh, was very commonly used to, to make light bulbs, but even more so as an alloy with iron to increase the strength of, of steel. Well, it has not been associated with health problems and it isn't regulated as a pollutant. But it was interesting to note that trees uh, in the area were investigated uh, just to see you know, if there were any pollutants uh, around and their outer rings had a higher tungsten content, perhaps showing recent exposure. The source of the tungsten may be a smelting plant some 20 miles away. But the, can tungsten cause leukemia? One small study in the scientific literature uh, has shown bone cells turning cancerous in the presence, and uh, another one showed leukemia cells multiplying more quickly in a tungsten solution. But the leukemia cluster disappeared after 2001, and presumably the tungsten was still there in the environment. So essentially, this cluster remains a mystery. So far, Nobody knows uh, you know, what really happened and whether or not tungsten should be worried about. Could this cluster in Fallon just be a quirk of nature? Well, at the point when 11 cases had been diagnosed, scientists calculated the odds of that cluster being coincidental at 232 million to one. And they noted in their publication that a cluster of this magnitude would be expected to occur in the US by chance about once in every 22,000 years. So that means rather unlikely, right? But keep in mind also that somebody always wins the lottery. And sometimes the odds for one person to win that lottery are greater than 232 million to one. So even though it is very improbable, some improbable events do happen. So it's possible that all we had there was a random event and it wasn't due to tungsten or anything else in the environment. And if you want to, to have sort of an analogy for such a random event, imagine that you have a jar 
of white marbles, a large jar of white marbles. And you take a handful of red marbles and put them into that jar. And then you start shaking that jar and shaking it and shaking it as long as you want. Do you think that those red marbles will be evenly distributed in the jar after all of your shaking? Chances are no. Chances are that in one area, you will see a cluster. And that's what we're talking about here, a possible random event. Yes, admittedly, in this case, uh, it is very likely to be uh, rare, but the rare events sometimes do happen. So this is the kind of thing that epidemiologists look at. They try to tease out what the problem was, but in this case, they were not able to come up with a solution. In another case, though, uh, the story is somewhat different. And I want to tell you about the story of McIntyre powder. But first, we'll take a break, check traffic, see what's going on out there, and we'll be right back. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Life's Everyday Mysteries Solved, The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. So we were just talking about epidemiology and uh, its lack of success in uh, figuring out what was going on in Fallon in Nevada. But now for a story that does have a different kind of ending. You know, these days, we certainly would not think of inhaling aluminum dust as being something that is advisable. And yet for some 35 years, starting in 1943 and up to about 1980, uh, workers in the mining industry were made to inhale aluminum dust, then known as McIntyre powder, for their health. Miners, particularly in gold mines, were at great risk for silicosis. Uh, Silica, chemically silicon dioxide, well, this substance is found in sand, it's found in quartz, for example, and quartz is the mineral in which streaks of gold are often embedded. So gold mines are particularly rich in quartz. And when uh, the miners drill the quartz, of course, some of the dust gets into the air. And the fine silica dust that is generated uh, damages the lungs and it causes something that is called silicosis. And when lung function, of course, uh, ceases to be uh, effective, uh, death quickly can ensue. Well, the thinking was that inhaling aluminum powder before a shift would allow the sharp crystals of silica to be coated with smooth aluminum and prevent lung damage. Now, this wasn't just pulled out of a hat, this, this idea. They certainly did experiments in animals, rabbits, for example. They exposed the rabbits first to aluminum powder and then plied them with silica dust. And uh, it turned out that lung damage was uh, uh, prevented with the aluminum powder. So they did institute it in mines. So before the shift, uh, miners would go into a room uh, where aluminum powder would be pumped into the air. They would be urged to inhale as much as possible and then would go on to work. Now, there was some efficacy here, but 
although the risk of silicosis was somewhat reduced, another problem eventually emerged. Many workers developed neurological diseases. Now, not immediately. It took some time. Parkinson's was the most common of this. So decades and decades after this whole business started, epidemiologists in this case were able to trace the problem to having inhaled aluminum powder. So Parkinson's was connected. Interestingly enough, Alzheimer's disease so far has not been connected to the inhaled aluminum. And uh, one would have expected that uh, to be linked if there were some truth to the allegation that aluminum is a player in the onset of Alzheimer's disease. And at one time that was a consideration, but um, today uh, researchers don't think that aluminum is a player in Alzheimer's disease. And that now is underlined by uh, the observation that these miners who were exposed to huge amounts of, of aluminum dust did not develop uh, Alzheimer's disease. The powder that was inhaled was called McIntyre powder and was named after Scottish immigrant Sandy McIntyre, who staked a mining claim in Northern Ontario and founded McIntyre Porcupine Mines Limited, which for a while was a prime gold mine. And uh, it uh, no longer uh, is uh, there in, in, in its original uh, sense. So there you go a more positive story about epidemiology. Somewhat of a sweeter story, I guess, because the uh, problem or the original problem was resolved. Well, talking about somewhat of a sweeter story, uh, honey. You know, if I were offered a taste of 3,300-year-old honey, I'd be game to give it a go. And that's the age of the honey found in a jar of uh, in a jar in King Tutankhamun's tomb. Now, that, of course, is pretty interesting. <laughs> I wouldn't worry because honey just doesn't spoil. There are several reasons for this. It has a very low water content, only about 18%, which is too low for bacteria to grow. Bacteria, of course, love water. They multiply effectively in a very moist environment. It has a high sugar content, and the sugar content draws moisture out of microbes, dehydrating and killing them. Finally, honey is acidic due to the presence of a number of acids, gluconic being the prime one, and uh, these form when enzymes in bee saliva break down sugars found in the nectar that bees collect from plants. Proteins are also broken down by enzymes into amino acids. The end result is that honey is acidic, pH of about 3.5, which is too acidic for bacteria to multiply. So if honey doesn't spoil, why does it have to be pasteurized? Well, it doesn't. Raw honey can be safely eaten, but the problem is that upon storage, it will begin to crystallize as sugar comes out of solution. Pasteurization prevents this from happening and keeps the honey smooth. How? When honey is heated to around 80 degrees for one to two minutes, microcrystals of glucose in the honey melt. Microcrystals act as nuclei, which are the essential starting points for the formation of crystals. If they're not there, crystallization is much less likely to occur. But the heat treatment has another effect as well. 
It also destroys the enzymes and natural yeasts that are present in honey, which are often promoted as having health benefits. This is not supported by scientific evidence. That is not surprising because enzymes are proteins that are broken down during digestion. Where honey may have some benefit is in covering wounds, acting as a natural bandage. This prevents bacteria in the air from infecting the wound. Also, some types of honey, depending on where the bees have gathered their nectar, can contain antibacterial compounds. Manuka honey, which comes from nectar the bees collect solely from tea trees that grow in New Zealand and Australia, shows some antibiotic effect, at least in a Petri dish. That, though, doesn't mean it has any effect if taken internally. Bottom line is that honey is basically sugar, whether pasteurized, unpasteurized, or raw. Eat it if you like the taste, but forget the antibiotic, antioxidant claims, and especially any anti-cancer claims. The latter makes me want to, oh, eliminate the contents of my stomach, sort of like what bees do when they regurgitate nectar, nectar to make honey. So as I, I said, honey does not have to be pasteurized because it preserves itself because of the high sugar uh, content. But the same thing cannot be said for raw milk. Milk does need to be pasteurized. Now, I know that there are people out there who think that drinking raw milk is great. Why? Because it's, no, it's natural and uh, the hand of man hasn't yet invaded it. This is really false thinking. Pasteurization is an extremely important process. It kills disease-causing bacteria. There are no real known benefits of drinking raw milk, but there's plenty of evidence that drinking unpasteurized milk can lead to all kinds of, of bacterial infections. E. coli would be of special concern. And no matter how clean the cows are, how immaculate that, that barn is, there are still bacteria present. So even if uh, there were some minute benefit from drinking raw milk, it is totally outweighed by the risk of bacterial infection. All right, we're going to check to see what's going on in the world out there. We'll check CTV News and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Opium, fascinating substance. You know that it comes from the juice that comes out from the opium poppy. And before the plant bursts into bloom, uh, if you make a little incision in the bulb, uh, out come this whitish juice that we call opium. After the discovery of tobacco in the 15th century, tobacco smoking became very popular among sailors who introduced it into China, India, Japan, and Siam. Or that's what Thailand was called at the time. In China, the practice became so widespread that Emperor Tsung Chen prohibited the use of tobacco in 1644. The people then turned to opium. By the end of the century, one quarter of the population was using opium. Why? Because, of course, the active ingredient in opium is morphine. And when you get morphine into your bloodstream, it has this exhilarating effect. Of course, it also is highly addictive. 
There wasn't enough to go around, and the British East India Company began to meet the need by supplying huge amounts, mostly smuggled into China via Canton, by British and American merchants and traded for tea. The Chinese government got fed up and decided to put an end to the illegal trade in 1839, when a thousand tons of opium were seized and destroyed. The port of Canton was close to the British, who didn't take kindly to this, and the first opium war was underway. It lasted till 1842, during which time 10,000 British troops captured several ports and the Chinese capitulated. At the peace conference in Nanking, the Chinese ceded Hong Kong to the British and had to concede greater trading rights. Opium flowed into China and through Chinese immigrants made its way to America and Australia. So it was immoral British behavior in the early 1800s that eventually resulted in the worldwide opium problem that we have today. And it is, of course, a huge problem. Uh, opium can easily be converted into heroin. Heroin does not occur in nature. Heroin is a synthetic substance. And you take morphine and you cook it up with acetic and hydride, and you get what we call acetylated morphine or heroin. The name was coined in the late 1800s because it was thought to be a better painkiller than morphine. It was believed that it was going to act in a more heroic fashion, hence heroin. It was also thought to be less addictive. Of course, that turned out not to be so. Heroin is actually more addictive than morphine, and we have the curse of heroin on our streets today. So in this rather interesting way, uh, that problem can be traced back to uh, the opium wars launched by the British uh, way back in the 1800s. Now, although, of course, we talk about opium and morphine in this context in a negative way, we also know that morphine is a highly effective painkiller. So it really is the typical example of being a double-edged sword. Uh, the mor morphine molecule itself cannot be talked about as either good or bad. I mean, molecules, of course, don't make any decisions. It's people who make decisions about how to use these, these things. All right, let me pass on to another rather interesting story, which is about the powder of sympathy. 400 years ago, Belgian physician Johann Baptist van Helmont was persecuted by the Roman Catholic Church for promoting the use of the powder of sympathy. Now, this was used to treat wounds by applying it to dressings uh, after the dressing had been removed. The exact nature of the substance varied, but iron or copper sulfate seemed to have been common ingredients. This uh, silliness was first proposed by physician and scoundrel Sir Kenelm Digby, but Van Helmont bought into the idea. Somehow the effect of the powder on the bloody dressing was to be communicated to the blood still in the body. Why these metal sulfates were supposed to have an effect on the blood at all isn't clear. The Catholic Church interpreted the powder of sympathy idea as the promotion of superstition and persecuted Van Helmont for his beliefs. Actually, 
Van Helmont did not believe the practice to be supernatural. He thought it was perfectly a natural phenomenon. Such curious views were not unusual at the time. In fact, Paracelsus, who was one of the first physicians to use specific drugs for specific diseases, also believed that treating a sword that had caused a wound would help the wound heal. He described an ointment consisting essentially of the moss on the skull of a man who had died a violent death, combined with boars and bear's fur, burnt worms, dried boar's brain, red sandalwood, and mummy powder, which was to be applied to the weapon that had inflicted the wound. The Royal Navy in 1687 tested the notion of sympathetic powder. A dog was wounded and sent off to sea while its bandage remained in London. At a prescribed time, the bandage would be treated with the powder and the dog was to feel the effect. Apparently, it did not, because the Navy did not pursue the practice. Although the belief in the powder of sympathy tarnishes Van Helmont's scientific reputation, he did make some valuable contributions to science. He was the first to systematically study the production of gases and chemical reactions. He realized that when charcoal burned, it released what he called a wild spirit. This, of course, was carbon dioxide. Van Helmont even introduced the word gas into the English language, apparently deriving it from the Greek term for chaos. He studied other gases as well. A red gas, which we know as nitrogen dioxide, was released when nitric acid, then known as aquafortis, was poured onto silver. Burning sulfur released sulfur dioxide. Van Helmont even found that intestinal gas was flammable, and he showed that burning gunpowder in a closed vessel caused an explosion because of the production of gases. In spite of these important findings, we best remember Van Helmont for his classic misinterpretation of his famous tree experiment. Believing that trees were composed of water, he designed an experiment to test the hypothesis. He weighed out exactly 200 pounds of earth, moistened it with water, and planted a small willow tree weighing five pounds. For five years, he judiciously watered it and watched the tree grow. Then Helmont weighed the soil, which still weighed the original 200 pounds, and weighed the tree to be 169 pounds. He concluded that the extra 164 pounds must have come from the weight of the water added. Amazingly, the man who spent much of his life studying gases did not realize that the tree was taking up carbon dioxide from the air. He had made an interesting observation, but it came to the wrong conclusion. Of course, had he weighed the amount of water that he added to the earth, he would have also realized that the plant had, grain, had gained more weight than just the water and would have had to conclude that something came from the air. But he made an observation and came to the wrong conclusion. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll check traffic and be right back. Science. 
your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. You ever think about chemicals in the shower? Well, I think about chemicals in the shower all the time. Of course, I think about chemicals everywhere all the time. Anyway, you do not have to worry about benzyl alcohol in the air when you're taking a shower. Why do I mention this? Because of a question I was asked uh, by someone who came across an interesting research paper from England that focused on exposure to chemicals from personal care products such as shampoos, conditioners, antiperspirants that are used during or after a shower. Benzyl alcohol was one of the most commonly detected chemicals. Now, I think the term benzyl may trigger concern because of the similarity to benzene, the inhalation of which is potentially dangerous. However, benzyl alcohol is a totally different substance, and its properties have been well studied. It poses essentially no risk and is even allowed as a food additive because it has a fruity flavor. In personal care products, it can add a scent, but its main role is as a preservative, often as a replacement for parabens. And parabens are a set of chemicals that have been controversial because they have been labeled as endocrine disruptors. Uh, the jury is still out on the potential risk of parabens. Marketers like benzyl alcohol because it can be categorized as natural since it does occur in a variety of fruits. The benzyl alcohol used in cosmetics or food though is not extracted from fruits, but is synthesized from toluene, a petrochemical. Not that this has any relevance as far as the chemicals properties are concerned. While there's no issue with benzyl alcohol, if you're concerned about what you may be inhaling during a shower, it does make sense to avoid polyvinyl chloride shower curtains since these can release a number of chemicals into the air. Phthalates, used to make polyvinyl chloride soft and pliable, are of particular concern since these really do have documented endocrine disrupting properties. Shower curtains made of polyethylene vinyl acetate would be a better choice. Uh, then there is the problem of compounds such as chloroform, a carcinogen that is a byproduct of water chlorination. Still, you know what is the biggest risk when you're taking a shower? Falling. And not taking showers also has a risk, at least to everyone all around you. So the bottom line here is that I don't think that benzyl alcohol in your shampoo uh, is of particular concern when you are taking a shower. Something else that people are concerned about these days are eggs, you know, because of their checkered history. The egg yolk contains cholesterol, and cholesterol, of course, is linked to, to heart disease. And uh, what about, you know, people who these days are going on plant-based diets, which is not such a bad idea. And these plant-based diets are all the rage these days. And, you know, they really do have some benefits. If you're making your own vegetable soup or ratatouille or grilled veggies, uh, you're kind of on the right track. You'll be consuming less fat, less salt, less cholesterol than uh, on a meat-based diet. 
But when it comes to foods fabricated from plant ingredients that aim to replicate the taste and texture of animal products, the story is a little different. For example, the uh, once popular Beyond Burger and Impossible Burger have no nutritional advantage over a beef burger. In fact, while they have the same amount of saturated fat, they have roughly four times as much sodium. True, they have no cholesterol, which is found only in animal products, but the 100 milligrams of cholesterol in a meat burger will have no impact on blood cholesterol. And as I said, the, the formerly popular Beyond Burger and Impossible Burger, their popularity recently has, has decreased. Uh, I don't know why, why that is, if people are actually finding that they don't really taste like burgers. Uh, although, you know, I've, I've tried both of those. And of course, you load them up with mustard and, and uh, tomato and lettuce and pickle and relish that you hardly taste the burger anyway. But back to the cholesterol issue. It's played up even more in egg replacements made of plant products, like the inappropriately named just egg. Just what does this have? No egg. It has a mouthwatering collage of mung bean protein isolate, canola oil, dehydrated onion, uh, gel and gum, carrot extract for color, natural flavors, turmeric extract for color, potassium citrate, soy lecithin, sugar, tapioca syrup, tetrasodium pyrophosphate, transglutaminase, and niacin as preservative. And what does it not have? Cholesterol. But again, blood cholesterol is much more a function of saturated fat in the diet than of dietary cholesterol. The American Heart Association has no issue with five to seven eggs a week in the diet. A real egg has a touch more saturated fat than a serving of just egg, but the latter has three times as much sodium. That's a chronic problem in processed foods, the sodium content. Eggs are also a very good source of vitamin B12, which is not found in plant products. Basically, health-wise, there's not much, if anything, to be gained by replacing beef burgers and eggs with their plant-based mimics. Where there is an advantage is in the latter's environmental footprint. Animal ag agriculture uses more water, more land, more fossil fuels, more pesticides, more synthetic fertilizer, has more greenhouse gas emissions, greater transportation costs, and produces problematic amounts of manure and antibiotic residues. But if you really want to support the environment and reap some health benefits as well, orient yourself towards a proper plant-based diet, which does not need to include expensive egg or meat mimics that don't taste like the real thing anyway. And of course, it is possible to make very, very tasty dishes with uh, plant products, with uh, vegetables, fruits, etc. It, it does take a bit more time to make a, a delicious vegetarian meal, but one can argue for its health benefits, and one can also argue for the advantage to the uh, environment because you will be leaving behind a smaller carbon footprint. Well, that's all the footprint that we're going to leave with you this week. 
because we have run out of time. But we'll be back with you same time, same station next week. And until then, I'm Josh Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. And cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. There's sulfur, californium, and fermium, berkelium, and also mendelevium, einsteinium, nobelium, and argon, kryptonium, radon, xenon, zinc, and rhodium, and chlorine, carbon, cobalt, copper, tungsten, tin, and sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered.